The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. If you'll remain standing for the reading of God's Word this morning, we're continuing our sermon series in the book of Matthew, uh, picking up this morning at Matthew chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 12. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. Of course, we find ourselves again in our Savior's Sermon on the Mount. Beginning at verse 1. This is the word of God. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and, the one, uh, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks him for a fish, will give him a serpent? If then you, who are evil, know, know uh, how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. It's the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our time together this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we have cried out to you this morning, pleading with you in our song, for you to teach us well your precepts from your word. And we pray, O Father, as we seek to study this particular portion of your word this morning, that you would use it, O Father, to show us how we ought to live godly in Christ Jesus in this present evil age. We pray, Father, that you would use this time to bless us by your word and by your spirit, that we might be conformed into the image of our Holy Savior, and that we might walk faithfully before you on this earth. We pray all these things in Jesus' strong name. Amen. Well, I I hate to be the bearer of bad news to you this morning. You may have not heard this before, but relationships are difficult. Relationships are difficult. I think we all know that, don't we? We all have relationships, perhaps even here and now, that are maybe on the rocks. Maybe they're in grievous danger of coming to the point of no return. Perhaps we have relationships that are already gone, and at least humanly speaking, they seem irreconcilable. This is a sad reality the world in which we live, is it not? Every one of us knows the pain of this reality. 
And we get asked the question, why? And of course, many of us, I hope, here this morning, we understand why. It's because we live in a world which is polluted by sin and misery. And there's nothing more dangerous than when sinners seek to interact with one another. That is something that is fraught with danger. There's danger around every turn. Uh, There's, of course, the malicious dangers that we see, the dangers of anger, of bitterness, of backbiting, of gossip, and we could continue on. And then less maliciously, there's the dangers of simple misunderstandings, of misinterpretation, and of confusion that can lead us to run into great trouble in our relationship with other people in this world. Of course, all of this, in a sense, is rooted in the fact that we are all sinners, that we don't forgive as we ought, that we don't act as we ought towards our brothers and sisters in Christ and even those outside of the church of Jesus Christ. But here, as we turn our attention to this particular section of the Lord's Sermon on the Mount, Jesus comes to us here with some immensely practical and yet some incredibly profound advice, direction, encouragement, and commands for us that seek to demonstrate to us how we ought to live rightly in relationships with others. You see, that's what Jesus is seeking to do this morning. I hope I can make the argument for you. Some of this text that we've read seems to be disjointed from the rest of the text around it, but we're going to seek to explain what Jesus is doing even in those passages so that we can see when we put it all together that what Jesus is doing in this passage is he's seeking to teach us the practice, the power, and the principle of living righteously in relationship to others. We're going to examine that then under those three headings. We're going to see first in verses 1 through 6, the practice of living righteously with others. Then we're going to continue on and see in verses 7 through 11, where our source of power lies to live righteously with others. And then last but not least, of course, we're going to see that single most famous verse there at the end of our passage in verse 12, what we've come to know as the golden rule, which stands as Jesus's overarching principle that ought to govern all of our relations with others. So if you would, turn with me or look with me in your scriptures and we'll begin this passage looking at verse 1 and considering the practice of righteousness in relationships. Look at what Jesus tells us here in verse 1. He says to us, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. This has got to be in the running for the most misinterpreted verse in all of the scripture. You can hardly turn on a television or look on your computer. I guess televisions are like 1990s stuff at this point. But you can hardly see, for instance, video of some protest. It really doesn't matter what the topic of the protest is in this country without seeing someone somewhere holding a sign up that says this verse. Judge not lest ye be judged. And of course, almost 100% of the time, that verse is going to be taken out of context, right? 
it's going to be taken out of context. It typically is being used to seek to defend some action that the Bible calls abominable or wicked or, you know, name your, name your condemnation. And yet it shows up all over the place. Judge not that you not be judged. What does it mean? What does it mean? Well, it functions here as something of a rule, doesn't it, for our interactions with other people. You notice that. He, he lays out a rule, judge not, and then he kind of tells us why we should judge not. Because with the judgment you give, right, it's going to be you who's judged in the end. What does it mean? Well, I want to focus on that last part first. What does it mean that the judgment that we pronounce will be used to judge us? Well, some commentators believe, a few, but some, think that what this is talking about is our interactions with other people. And what Jesus is saying here is merely about the interactions we have with human beings. So basically the idea going on here is that if you judge people harshly, what should you expect in return? Well, you should expect to be judged harshly. And if you show kindness, well, what should you expect in return? Well, you should expect kindness. Now, no doubt there is an element of truth in that. But that doesn't seem to be the point of what Jesus is getting at here. I think if we take a broader view of the Sermon on the Mount even, we can see passages such as chapter 6, verses 14 and following, which have a similar idea. Look at verse 14 of chapter 6. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. We can see the similarity in the idea that Jesus is laying out here, can't we? The demeanor with which we treat other people, well, that ought to tell us a lot, not only about our spiritual condition, but also about the demeanor with which the Lord will treat us. You see, what he's trying to tell us here is that if you are a harsh judge of persons, if you're the kind of person that nitpicks, you're the kind of person who's hypercritical, then you should remember that everything you do, you do quorum Deo. You do before the face of your God. You need to remember, friends, that you are not the ultimate judge, but your Lord is the ultimate judge. And he sees everything that you do. And he has shown you, if you are a Christian, grace and mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that ought to, that ought to affirm, affirm or inform, rather, the way that you interact with others. You ought not be marked by this harshness, by this judgmental attitude towards those around you. So that, I think, explains the second verse, but we really haven't clarified what the first verse is talking about, have we? What exactly does Jesus mean when he says, judge not? Well, I think if we read from verses 3 and following, we'll begin to get some insight, won't we? What does he say there? He says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? And then verse 5 is the key. You hypocrites, 
Why, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Here we see clearly what Jesus is aiming at in verse 1, don't we? We see that he's not telling us that we can't make any moral judgments about anything in the world. Okay, That's ridiculous. Not only is it ridiculous at face value, it would mean, in a sense, that we become basically non-human. We have to make judgments. We have to exercise discernment in the things that we do, in the people we interact with. We do it all the time. Indeed, even in this passage, we're called to do just that. We're told first to take the log out of our own eye, but then what does he say? So that you might take the speck out of your brother's eye. If we expand our aperture a little bit, we could think of texts like 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, where Paul there exhorts the Christians because they don't seem to be able to judge even petty disputes amongst themselves. And Paul reminds them there that they, the saints, are going to be the ones who judge all of the earth. Indeed, he says, they're going to be the ones who judge the angels. And so he makes an argument from the greater to the lesser there. If you're going to judge the angels, you ought to be able to exercise judgment in petty disputes. It's clear, if we take the scope of the New Testament, that Jesus cannot be advocating for us not to judge anyone ever. But what he is clearly advocating is that we check a hypercritical And more importantly, a hypocritical spirit that is found in that criticism of others. You see, Jesus is telling us here that there are two dangers, if you will, involved in our relationships with others. He's going to tell us in verse 6 that there's one danger. We might be tempted to see it as the opposite of this danger, although I don't think it is. And that's the danger of naivete. It's dangerous to be naive. But first, he addresses this first danger of hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is grave danger for a relationship, is it not? Because when you're a hypocrite, you have, as it were, a log in your own eye. Now, obviously, this is a ridiculous image that Jesus has drawn for us. You can imagine for a moment someone walking around the parking lot with a telephone pole sticking out of their face. That's a ridiculous image. But the implication is clear. If you have a telephone pole, a log, whatever, a 4 by 4 beam, you know, imagine what you will here, sticking out of your face, what is that going to do? Well, it's certainly going to cloud your ability to see clearly, is it not? It's going to cloud your ability to see clearly. And you see, just like that log would cloud your physical ability to see, so hypocrisy clouds your spiritual discernment. It clouds your spiritual discernment of yourself, because you think higher of yourself than you ought, but it also clouds your spiritual discernment of your brother. Does it not? What does he say here? You have to take the log out of your own eye that you might see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So he deals with this danger of hypocrisy. And he also tells us, by way of passing here, that we must, we must, and we have a duty to remove the speck from our brother's eye. That would be easy to miss here. 
would it not? But it is the testimony of the scripture that the Christian has a duty to his brothers and sisters in Christ. He has a duty to seek to reclaim a brother who is straying. We see that from James chapter 5, from Galatians chapter 6. Those who are spiritual, Paul tells us in Galatians, are to seek to restore those who are erring. We see even places like uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, uh, that we are to be admonishing one another. We are to be gently rebuking, encouraging, seeking to encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ in holiness. When we see a brother going astray, we, we, we need, we have a duty to correct them. And yet to be suited to do that, we must first look inwards and deal with the own, our own sins of hypocrisy. We must put that sin to death if we are to be of any use in helping our brothers and sisters in Christ in this way. So he deals with this danger of hypocrisy. And then as we move to verse 6, we see him turning his attention away from that particular danger uh, to another equally dangerous uh, view. And in verse 6 he says, Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. What in the world is Jesus talking about? It seems kind of disjointed from what he said already, doesn't it? Just at face value. But if you think about it for a moment, it actually makes perfect sense. He's continuing to flesh out this theme. This theme that he began with this topic of hypocrisy. And he's still encouraging us to cultivate really the same thing. He's encouraging us to cultivate spiritual discernment in our relationship with others, isn't he? Because here he uses some some very interesting language. He talks about dogs and he talks about pigs. Again, what's he talking about? Well, this is the language that the Jews would have often used to describe the Gentiles, is it not? We can think, for instance, of instances in the New Testament even where we hear Gentiles referred to as as dogs. This is a word that the Jews would use to describe someone who was outside of the kingdom of God, if you will. He's a dog. A pig, of course, is really the standard example of an unclean animal, is it not? It's something that the Gentiles are identified with. It's something that's unclean in the extreme. It's a dirty animal. And it's only kept by the Gentiles. When he's talking about dogs and pigs here, it seems like he's drawing on the language of his day, but he's not using it, I don't think, the same way. We know from the Gospel of Matthew, I mean, this is the Gospel that ends with the Great Commission and the, the Gospel being sent to the ends of the earth with the command for the church to go forth and make disciples of all the nations. It's not here an instance in which Jesus is using racist or uh, ethnocentric terms to describe others. What he's doing is he's applying this language of dogs and pigs from the common parlance of his day, and he's using it to describe those of a certain spiritual condition, particularly those who are outside of the kingdom of heaven. You see, when he talks about dogs and pigs here, he's talking about those... Uh, who are, we could use our own language, non-Christians, who are unbelievers. Not just those who are unbelievers, but those who are, it seems, 
militantly so. Now what is the purpose of this statement then? Do not give to dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs. Well, what Jesus is seeking to teach us here is that we must exercise our spiritual discernment, the same spiritual discernment that we're called to exercise on ourselves, the same spiritual discernment that we're called to exercise with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We must exercise that same discernment when it comes to dealing with those outside of the church. We must be able to discern when those outside are not just people who are going to be receptive, perhaps, to the gospel, to our encouragements, but rather when doing so, when seeking to correct, rebuke, encourage, admonish, perhaps even seeking to bring spiritual advice into their life, is not going to be received. Rather, all that good, all those good things that we tell them, they're just going to be trampled underfoot. And even further, it may put us in physical or perhaps spiritual danger. They turn from trampling our good, our holy, the pearls that we give them underfoot, to attacking us. He's calling us to exercise a great deal of spiritual discernment here. And he's telling us about the danger of naivete. Now, I think that the church of Jesus Christ has not always been great when it comes to this question of being discerning. Sometimes it's almost as if we believe that naivete, spiritual naivete in particular, is some sort of a virtue. That's not the case, friends. And what Jesus tells us here is that not only is naivete not a virtue, it's a vice. It's a great danger. It's a great danger because it can put us in harm's way. It can put others in harm's way. And we need to seek to cultivate our discernment in this area just as much as in any other so here at the end of verse 6, though, we see what many perceive as a radical shift in the text. Some believe that the following verses, verses 7 through 11, have nothing to do uh, with verses 1 to 6. And in, in a sense, you can understand why they would get to that place. Because it, it doesn't necessarily seem at first reading uh, that they are connected But as we see, or as we're going to see, they're actually intimately connected. Because by the time we get to the end of verse 6, I think if we're honest with ourselves, if we're honest with ourselves, we all have to admit, as no doubt the people sitting around Jesus while he was teaching this sermon themselves did, that we are not able to do what Jesus is calling us to do here. We're just not. I mean, look at what he's said to us. He's given us quite a task, hasn't he? He's told to us, well, first, you need to check your hypercritical spirit. You don't need to be going around criticizing your brothers and sisters in Christ, and you definitely need to be sure that as you're doing any kind of criticism of anyone else, you need to check your own hypocrisy. 
He's called us to, to search ourselves thoroughly. And then he's called us also to search our brothers and sisters in Christ. He, he's calling us to, to make sure we're not hypocrites, but at the same time, he's not giving us a pass and just saying that we can let everybody around us go on sinning without saying anything to them. We also have to get involved in what can be a very tricky and dangerous thing. We have to interact with these people and we have to seek to encourage and rebuke and admonish them. But not only does he want to check our hypocrisy, not only does he want us to be discerning about our brothers and sisters in Christ, he also is calling us to discernment about the world around us. He's calling us to be able, with some measure of accuracy, to be able to determine who's a friend and a foe, who's dangerous. What he's calling us to do here is no easy task. It's no easy task. And any of us who really understand what he's advocating here, have got to realize that we have totally failed at this up to this point. We failed. How are we going to do this? And the answer to that question is in verse, verses 7 and following. What does he say in verse 7? Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one, uh, and to the one who knocks, it will be open. Uh, what is he getting at here? What Jesus is doing here is he's showing us that there is power. There is a source of power for our righteousness in regards to our relationships with others. In other words, he's pointing us to the only way that we will ever be able to do what he's calling us to do in these first six verses. He's calling us here, or he's showing us here rather, the means of access to this power, and he's showing us the source of this power. The means of access, I think it's pretty obvious what he's advocating we do here. (laughs) He's advocating that we realize our inability to make any progress in these areas which he's calling us to improve. And he's advocating that we get on our knees and that we pray to our God that he would give us the ability to do this. He's focusing on the means of access to this power. Friends, Earnest and persistent prayer is how the believer is called to access the power for righteous living in relationship with others, and for that matter, righteous living in every other aspect of our life. He's calling us to earnest and persistent prayer, but he's also showing us not only the means of accessing this power, but he's showing us the source of this power. And that's what he does in verse 9 and following. He, he draws our attention to our own earthly relationships. He says, Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If then you give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to the, or give good things to those who ask him? Excuse me, I, I misread the misread it and I skipped over the most important point there in verse 11 if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children 
how much more will your Father give you good things? Now, what is Jesus teaching us here? He's teaching us that if we know how to give good gifts to our children, and we do, right? Any parent here who's humane knows what it's like to give a gift to their child and have their child be excited by receiving that gift. You know what it's like. You know the joy that it brings you as a parent when you see your child delighting in some good thing that you gave them. We know what that's like. And he says to us, quite frankly, if we who are evil know how to do this, how much more will the God of infinite goodness and holiness know how to do this? How much more will our God, who is free from all of our imperfections, who is the abject antithesis of our ungodliness and our wickedness, how much more will he rejoice to give his children good gifts? In other words, he's telling us, if you desire to live a righteous life, if you desire to improve in these areas, you desire discernment, you desire to know how to interact with people in a godly and a righteous way, ask your father. And he will, he will answer that prayer. He will do it. This is, of course, the source of the power of, for our righteousness. Our gracious God, our Heavenly Father, is the fountain of every spiritual blessing, and He's the source of all spiritual power. What Jesus says here is amplified, I believe, by what Paul says in Romans chapter 8 uh, when he directs our attention there uh, to the amazing reality uh, that our God. And Father loved us so much that he gave his son to us. And Paul asked the question there, if he gave us his son, will he not also give us every good thing? Now think about that for a moment. If he gave us his son, will he not also give us every good thing? Our father gave us his only begotten son who came to this earth and took to himself our flesh, lived amongst us miserable sinners, died a cursed death on the cross. And why did he do all that? He did all that because our God loves us. And that, friends, ought to assure us, that ought to assure us that our God will give us every good gift. It ought to assure us that every good gift will come from our Father. Prayer, then, is the lifeblood of godliness. This is an important point, obviously, not only with relation to our relationships, but just in general. Prayer is the lifeblood of our godliness. It's the means by which we access the source of all the good gifts that our Father pours out upon us in this life. But we should note another thing here, and that is the quality of the gifts that our Father gives. Of course, we've noted this already, that he gives good gifts. But I want to make a point here, a point that a friend that I have had for many years often has made to me throughout my life. There's been many times where 
I, and I'm, I'm sure you, have found myself asking the question, why would the Lord do this? I remember, in particular, whenever I was a young man, pleading with God earnestly for certain things, good things, and the Lord seemingly telling me no, <laughs> constantly. You know, every time I would seek something earnestly, it seemed like the Lord would, would close that door for me. And I remember one day sitting on this man's couch and, and talking to him about this spiritual struggle I was having. You know, I'm pleading with the Lord for these things, and he's not giving them to me. And you know what he said to me? He used the language of this verse in a very helpful way. He rebuked me, rightly. And he told me, friend, the Lord does not give snakes, and he does not give stones to his children. That's an important point here. You see, it is difficult to believe this sometimes, is it not? It's difficult when that loved one dies. It's difficult when that job fires us. It's difficult when we find ourselves doing all sorts of things in this world and, and doors being closed all around us. And, and we can seem, we can seem, it can seem to us uh, like the Lord has turned his face against us. But that's not the case, friends. If we're his child, then he is working all things together for our good. And my friend reminded me there that maybe there's times, and I think there is, where I was praying earnestly for the Lord, for something that looked good to me, but actually, in reality, I wasn't praying for bread. I wasn't praying for a fish. I was praying for a snake. I was praying for a stone. And the Lord was protecting me from myself and from my own ignorance. See, the Lord knows better than us. And when we ask him, he gives us good things. That ought to encourage us. That ought to encourage our hearts. That ought to encourage us in the hard times of this life. And it ought to encourage us to cry out to him expectantly. You see, this text leaves no room, really, for us to do anything else, does it? This is a stark statement. This is a pointed statement. Ask, you'll receive. Knock, it will be opened. If we pray to the Lord for righteousness, for wisdom, think of what James says in James chapter 1. If you lack wisdom, ask the Lord. He'll give it. If we pray earnestly, righteously, for the good things of this world, our Lord will be more than happy to bless us with them. To bless us with them. So we move then from this power that Jesus points us to for righteous living and relationships to verse 12, to the end of our passage. And we see there, not the power, not the practice, but the overarching principle that governs all of our righteousness, all of our relationships in this world, it directs us in every single aspect of our life. And that, of course, is what we tend to call the golden rule. Let's even mark that in my Bible. Verse 12. Verse 12 says, So whatever you wish that 
others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Jesus here lays out the principle for us, and then he also indicates the breadth of the principle, doesn't he? Look what he does at first. He, he tells us the principle. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do to them. The principle is very helpful, isn't it? It's very portable. You can take it with you anywhere you want to go. You don't have to rush to your Bible and see what Leviticus you know, chapter 13 has to say about something. In every given instance in which you find yourself, rather, you can just apply this principle. And it works really well. It works really well. Do unto others what you would have them to do to you. Calvin, I think, beautifully sums this up. Uh, He says, uh, when our own advantage is concerned, when our own advantage is concerned, there is not one of us who cannot explain minutely and ingeniously what ought to be done. Every man shows himself to be a skillful teacher of justice when it's for his own advantage. You can see what Jesus is doing here. Embedded in every single one of us is a desire for justice, a desire for ourselves to be treated justly, right? And so it's quite easy when we're seeking to do justice to others When someone calls you in the middle of the night and they're broken down on the side of the road and they ask you, hey, brother, can you come and pick me up? Well, you immediately have some some moral calculus to do, don't you? You have to think to yourself, well, what is more important, my sleep or my brother being stuck on the side of the road? And many of us know that we spend a little more time thinking about that than we ought to. But if we were to apply this rule, the answer would be pretty easy, wouldn't it? You want to be stuck on the side of the road all night? No, of course not. So go get your brother. It's a handy rule, but it's a profound rule. And what does he say about the breadth of this rule? He tells us that all of the law and the prophets can be summarized in this short statement of moral clarity. All the laws which regulate and direct our actions regarding others can be deduced from this simple statement of succinct moral clarity. Do unto them as you would have them to do unto you. It's simple. It's pithy. But it's profound. It's profound. What is your first thought? When you find yourself interacting with another person, is your first thought about that person kind of running the numbers in the back of your head and trying to figure out how can this person be of use to me? How can they further my ends? How can they be valuable to my life? Or is it this. How can I be of value to them? How can I be of service to them? Do you think about people as instruments for your own self-pleasure, for your own selfishness, or do you have a selfless attitude towards others? You see, that's what Jesus is calling us to do. It's It's a simple statement. It's a pithy statement. 
It's a profound statement, but it's also a difficult statement. Because it requires us to put to death something that is innate in our sinful nature and is very powerful. And that is our innate understanding that we are the most important things in the world. We know that. If we're honest with ourselves, this is how we think on a regular basis. We look at people around us and we think to ourselves in the back of our mind, yeah, that person's nice, but they're not, they're not me. And what Jesus is seeking to do here is he's seeking to put a dagger in the heart of that kind of thinking. He's seeking to push us outwards, to cultivate in us selflessness and justice and not selfishness and injustice. Healthy, righteous relationships then are built off of mutual selflessness and self-sacrifice. This principle informs all of our relationships quite adequately and quite helpfully. And if we apply it, we will know what we ought to do in every situation. That's what our Savior is teaching us about this principle. As we conclude... I want us to consider what our Savior is calling us to here this morning. I particularly want us to consider that as we think about our lives in the kingdom, our lives in the church. I want us to leave this morning not just thinking, well, that was kind of a long, boring sermon by a seminarian, but thinking seriously about what the Savior is calling us to do here. I want us to leave intentionally seeking, even this day, to put into practice this principle and to do so on reliance, or in reliance rather, on the power that can only come from our Heavenly Father. If we would do that, it would be to the great gain of this congregation. Indeed, it would be to the great gain of the kingdom of God. Let that be true of us today. Let that be true of us this week. For our good, yes, but most importantly, for the glory of our Heavenly Father. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, that you have deemed it fit to give us direction for every aspect of our life. Not only did it give us direction and give us the principles of what it means to be righteous in this world, but also to buy your spiritual blessings that you've poured out upon us in Christ Jesus to give us the power and the ability to live righteously before you. Imperfectly, yes, but in a way that is always improving. We thank you for this and we pray, O Lord, that you would bless us and renew in us a desire to live righteously in relationship with others this week. I pray, Father, that the words that we have considered this morning would inform our conversations with our wives, with our husbands, with our children, with our neighbors, with everyone we come into contact with. Lord, I pray that you would help us, O Lord, not fall prey to the danger of hypocrisy or even naivete, but that you would bless us by your power that we, Lord, might understand how to live selflessly, 
and righteously towards our brothers and sisters in Christ and even towards the world. We pray, O Lord, that you would make us more like our Savior in this way, who was willing to humble himself to the point of death on a cross for lowly sinners such as us. We pray this in his name. Amen.